we're going to go on a journey. I'll just give you a little warning ahead of time. It's dark at the beginning of this journey. And it's a story of a mom. But it lightens up and it comes out, hopefully, with you walking out with some encouragement today from this great Bible story. If you brought your Bible, turn to the book of Ruth, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. It's a tiny little four-chapter book stuck in there. If you use the black Bibles in front of you, it's page 199, which makes it easier for you to find it. And we're going to read a little bit of this story. I hope that you'll find out here in a few minutes that this is not just some random story that was wedged in in the Bible in a little convenient spot. It actually is an amazing story of connection and of God. And moms, I hope you walk away with this today. Ruth chapter 1, we're going to read right out of the shoot here, verse 1. Actually, we can start in front of that. If you can see the verse in front, which is from the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the setup. Now, it was about that time, during the time of the judges when they governed, that there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Only time those names are mentioned. Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Ephrathites meant that was kind of the region, almost like the state. Judah was their tribe, a larger area. And then they were in the small town of Bethlehem, where they were from. They entered the land of Moab and remained there. If you can imagine in your mind that long strip of the Dead Sea in the Promised Land, on the west side of it, right there, is where Judah is, down on the southern end of it. And Bethlehem was there. These guys now go underneath the Dead Sea, travel across, and go to the east side, which is where Moab is. It's a completely separate place. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah. It looks like Oprah. That may be where she got her name, but Orpah. And the name of the other is Ruth. And they lived there for about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. The story's getting worse. And the women were bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law. She arose that she might return from the land of Moab. You'll see this word appear at least a dozen times in these next few verses. Returning is a key element of this story. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Visiting in this word in the Hebrew is not just like he dropped by, said, hey, and hit the door. This is the idea of a superior coming and making a significant investment in a subordinate. This is a serious investment on God's part. Verse 7, so she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of your own husband. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. You can hear they have a good relationship with each other. And they said to her, no, we'll surely return with you to your people. 
But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands someday? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight who would bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown and refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It is harder for me than it is for you. Maybe that's where moms get that thing. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I don't know. Maybe that was here. But for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. This idea was not just a physical hand. It was used very often by the Hebrews as indicative of motion either against or four, and very open, which is offering, or closed, or I put my hand to work. And she interprets what has happened in her life as the hand of God being against her. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices, they wept again, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left, in other words, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Famous verses here. For where I go, or where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your gods will be my gods. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they went on to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred up because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? They remember. And she says to them, Do not call me Naomi, which in the Hebrew means pleasant, but instead call me Mara, which in the Hebrew means bitter. For the Lord, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. And I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back or returned me here empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord is witness against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of a barley harvest. And now the story starts to turn. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband. This is not just a random kin. This is someone who is qualified to be a kinsman redeemer. We will talk about that a few minutes in, in a few minutes here. A man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Mo- Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, and so that I might find favor with someone there. Not just a favor like, here you go, here's a favor, but favor like grace, like Okay, I am in. So Naomi probably half-heartedly says, Go, my daughter. And she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. This is a very common practice that the Jews had where they would leave the uncut edges around the perimeter of the field so that the poor could come along and pick up the leftover grain and make their own bread out of it. And she happened to come to, wasn't she lucky, she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. If you believe this is a coincidence, you got to be kidding. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. I'm sure that's how you talk to each other at work all the time, your boss and you. And he says, 
to the servant who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is that out there in the field? And the servant then tells her she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, can I glean here and gather after the reapers? And thus she came and she's remained here from morning till now. She's been sitting in the house for a little bit. So Boaz goes to her and says, listen carefully, my daughter. And if you read all of this, he fills her in. I will take care of you. Nobody will touch you. Stay in the field. Follow my maidens. If you're thirsty, drink something. And she says in verse 10, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? A very good question. And Boaz says to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and you came to a people that you didn't even know. May the Lord reward your work. And your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Boaz doesn't even take credit for it. And he says to her, you have come to this new people that you don't know. And you've come to seek refuge. And the wings here are safe. The wings are safe. If you go on, read the story. She goes home. She talks to Naomi. Naomi says, where did you get all this food? And Ruth says, well, I went to this field and a man took very good care of me. And oh, by the way, his name is Boaz. And the light goes off. And Naomi says, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And isn't it amazing that he has blessed us? And she says for the first time, a little phrase, go back to him because it is good what God is doing. We're going to glean some more here in just a few minutes. But I just wanted you to just hear the story and moms realize that there are some amazing opportunities. But this process of the darkness to the light is important. And that's what hopefully we'll be able to track today. So here's the big picture encouragement for moms. And the next one up if you can. Your darkest hours can fuel your brightest hours. Now... I know when you're in the darkness, it doesn't seem like that. But it's true. Your darkest hours can provide the engine beneath your brightest hours. As we said before, this was a dark time. Several hundred years of judges ruling and people doing whatever they felt like they could do. There was a famine. Things start to add up if you start to see this. Let's go to the next one, if you will. Desperation actually ends up demanding some decisions. Desperation puts her in a position where she's got to make some hard decisions. Look at how desperate this is. First of all, famine comes along. She has to leave her people, go someplace she doesn't know. In fact, to a bunch of people that have been pestering the Israelites for a long time. She leaves her She is not the only one in town probably, but not everybody left Bethlehem. So she's feeling that sense of abandoning them. She's probably ashamed. It's not a good scenario. But she's thinking, well, we've got to survive. So she goes with her husband. Then, not long after that, apparently, he dies. Now, if you know anything about this history of this, this time frame, there are no government programs to take care of her. She's in bad shape right now. But at least she's got some young men with her. She's got her boys with her. So those guys then... Marry two Moabite women. This is not good for a Jewish family because they are strictly commanded not to marry outside of the Jewish nation. 
but she's kind of resolving herself. I guess we're kind of here. We're kind of stuck here. Now, 10 years passed after they get married, and there's no grandchildren. And at this point, Naomi starts to say, not only are things dark, this might be something that God has against. We must have done something to make God very disappointed with us. Very disappointed. No grandchildren. And to top it off, both the boys die, and the way that's structured in the sentence, it's highly likely both these boys died in the same incident. She loses, now she's lost her husband, she's lost both of her sons, she is a widow in a foreign country with no men to provide for her, she's got these two daughters-in-law, it's desperate, it's dark, it's a tough time, and she's got to make some decisions. But let me just throw this in here right now for you, I want you to hear this as a warning. God is in the business of tearing down our idols. That's his business. God does what he has to to get our attention. Now, sometimes our idols are things that we think, well, I don't know, you know, that's uh, money or whatever. And we, we may say, well, you know what? Many times our idols are things that we can very easily justify. They're good things. Maybe even a relationship with a husband or maybe even a relationship with children. They could, anything in the way, in the place of God that takes higher priority is an idol. And she started doing the math and saying, I don't know, but maybe I've got something I need to work on here. And I just ask you, in this moment, you've got a chance to ask yourself the question, any idols out there? So maybe your loss, of course, her loss was tragic. Lost husband, lost sons, lost family, lost everything. Maybe yours looks different than that, moms. And, and it's just as real to you. Maybe you have experienced some divorce. And that was not what you thought was going to happen in your life. And that has produced grief and loss for you. Pain. Maybe you've experienced a difficult child or a teenager who has made life really tough for you in your own home. And you're experiencing the loss of not even being able to enjoy being a mom. That may be true. Your loss may look like this. It may be the betrayal of an older child who you raised in faith. And then when they got to their freedom point, they went their own trajectory in their own way. And now you're experiencing the loss of what you thought would happen there. Maybe you're experiencing the loss of abortion. Maybe the loss of infertility or other struggles to have your own children, miscarriages. Maybe you've lost adoptions. Loss doesn't have to look exactly the same, but moms, you feel this acutely and you feel that pain and you feel that struggle, and I know that you do. When I was preparing for this lesson, I, I texted my uh, sister-in-law. You probably don't know the story. My brother and sister-in-law who live in Indianapolis, they have had a very tough time. She got pregnant several times, had several miscarriages months into the process. Then they did some more research and they went through the drugs and everything, went through a long period of time, finally coming to the point that she was infertile, was not going to have her own children. Then they signed up for the adoption process. 
they twice now have gone all the way to the point, once they were in the hospital waiting to take the baby with them, and the mom decided to keep the child. The other time, they went through the whole process, went to Florida, got everything lined up, another dead end. So I sent to Lindsay, and I said, what would you say at this point? Because I know you're here. And Lindsay said this. I'm not even going to try to say it any better than she did. She said, for the last several Mother's Days, I've experienced anything but hope. I've had doubt. I've had anger, fear, resentment, jealousy, and anxiety. And those were easy for me to experience because I felt them very deeply. But she said, this year, my Mother's Day experience is going to be different because I choose hope. And with that hope comes freedom. Hope helps me navigate the deep waters and the empty places in my heart. I choose to be grounded in the truth that God loves me and that he is changing my heart. I must learn to suffer well. I've had to ask the very hard questions, and I've got really difficult answers, and I've had to cope with unanswered prayer. I, though, must experience God and not just know about God. After all, my Heavenly Father knows what it feels like to lose a son. And Jesus knows what it feels like to live without children and to experience separation. He came to bear my sorrows and to carry my grief. Moms, I know it's real. I know the pain is there. The pain was there for Naomi. But in the desperation, she had to make some decisions. It was tough. So she arose. That just the simple act sometimes of getting up, right? She arose. And second of all, she returned. This was not an easy thing. She just didn't like book a ticket on Pan Am and fly somewhere She has to get part of a caravan. She has to figure out she probably has very little money. She's got a couple of girls with her. She gets to the point where she just realizes, for me to take these girls out of this country is probably not going to work. I need to send them back. But she was still determined to go home, to return. It was an important thing. She even was so struggling that you know she had drawn the conclusion, God's hands against me, and I'm bitter, and I'm no longer pleasant. Now, returning is a very important thing. It's an opportunity that we all have. The word is used dozens and dozens, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah alone, it shows up 111 times. And the idea is this. It's where we get the concept for repentance. Now, we often think of repentance as some kind of a flogging of ourselves or some kind of a terrible thing. No, it's simply this. You're walking a direction. It dawns on you, hey, This is the wrong direction. So I will turn around and go back this way, back to a place where I know it's safe. And then I'll go from there. That's all repentance means. And it comes up over and over and over in this book. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it's something we have to do. Now, if you have one of these crazy smartphones in your pocket, get it out right now. You could look at it. Get your smartphone out. If you don't, if you have one of these things at home or whatever, you can do this simple exercise with me. If you've got your smartphone, kind of put your thumbs up there like you're going to type something right now. 
Or imagine if you got one of these tablets or a keyboard, put your fingers on the home base like you're ready to type. Okay, do it with me. There we go. Now, on the right-hand side of the keyboard over here in the corner is a long key that has a label on it, and it says, Return. You've hit it with your pinky a million times, or you've hit it with that right thumb a whole bunch of times while you've been working. These next couple weeks, here's what I want you to do. When you're hitting that key, ask yourself the question, Do I need to return? I don't know what your story is. Maybe you geographically need to return someplace. Maybe spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you need to return. I know this for sure. God doesn't want you just to go back to some kind of a system or the way you were raised out of guilt or something like that. Forget that. But return to truth. Return to a place that you know is safe. A place that's honest and true where God is. And go from there. And you know, sometimes, as in Naomi's case, she's saying, I'm old, I don't know how much time I have left, whatever. The truth is, it's never too late to return. Return. So desperation demands tough decisions. Next thing is this. Convictions conquer circumstances. When you get into these very difficult circumstances, you've got the chance to do something. You still have a role. There's still people counting on you. You, The paralysis from the pain is an option, but it's a bad one. There's nothing good that will come from that. We often, here's what we do many, many times. We have the pain, and we decide, decide in ourselves, I don't want to feel that pain anymore. That is tough. I don't want to go there. So, self-protection from that seems like a very good idea. I will just push people out over there. I will keep them out there. It seems logical. It seems reasonable. It seems functional. Here's the bad news. If you protect yourselves from that pain, that's where desperation lives. Fascinatingly, counterintuitively, the only place to go where you can come to terms with, you can reconcile with pain and loss, is to go in love for others and be a part of their lives. Get your eyes off of yourself, see others, open your heart and love. That's where God brings reconciliation and hope. Return. Staying in the silo of isolation, I promise you, will result in depression, despair, hopelessness. Convictions to do the right thing, to still love others, can possibly bring about and conquer. They don't do away with the pain. They don't change the circumstances. They just trump the circumstances. The next thought is this. The encouragement for moms was a big part. And in this story of these two moms, you may see some immediate or short-term hope. There's two things that happen here that had Naomi been able to lift her eyes a little bit, it would have been amazing to her. But she's so caught in her bitterness that she couldn't see it. But it may happen for you. Next slide there, Carmine. First of all is the choice of Ruth. Do you realize how unbelievable this choice is that she makes? First of all, her own sister-in-law has already gone back home. Reasonably so. 
Second of all, her mother-in-law is encouraging her very deeply. Please go back home. Don't stay with me. I don't have any hope for you. What am I going to have more kids? Look at me. I'm 187. Okay, she's not 187. But, you know, she's feeling the fact there is nothing else I can do for you, Ruth. But Ruth clings. It's an unbelievable decision that she makes. And she makes some commitments to her. She says, where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. It's a proximity commitment. I'm staying with you. Second of all, a people commitment. Your people will become my people group. This is not easy for neighboring Hatfields and McCoys. But your people will become my people. Third, amazingly, your God will become my God. And fourth, where you die, I will die. She makes a commitment to the ends of her life. Unbelievable. The most amazing has got to be the one where she says, your gods will become my gods. Just a couple of minutes ago, Naomi was saying, you know, this God has not been very good right now. He's got his hand against us. Things aren't going very well. What is this like a great evangelical message? Not at all. And yet, something had happened in the story to where Ruth said, I even will come and embrace your gods with you. Charles Spurgeon said this, Perhaps some of you have had bereavements in your homes. But if the death, the temporal death, of one should be the means of the spiritual life of another, there is clear gain. I'm sure that there is. And though you may have gone weeping to the grave, yet if you have evidence that with those tears there were also tears of repentance or returning on the part of others in your family, then you are decidedly a great gainer. Don't miss these beautiful things that can happen. You may experience them. Next slide, Carmine. The next thing that she almost missed is the grace of Boaz. Although, thankfully, the lights are starting to turn on for Naomi at this point, And she's starting to see some of it. The tradition of the kinsman redeemer is amazing. This was not just a guy who, by the way, could kind of just show up and just say, well, I'll, I'll do some nice things for this family. Here's the deal. Here's how it was set up back in Leviticus 25. If a man dies and his childbearing aged wife is left over, then a family member comes along, marries her, and the first son that they have carries on the name of the deceased husband. And in fact, exactly the way it's written in in the Hebrew is so that the name of the guy will not be blotted out from the history of Israel forever because that's what would happen. It was a very gracious thing. Now, Boaz not only does his job here, he goes way above and beyond because there was a first guy in line. If you read the rest of the story, a guy that was there before that was the primary kinsman redeemer. So Boaz goes and gets him. He figures out the scheme out. He says, "Okay, here's the deal. I'll go get that redeemer, bring him into the gates where all of the elders would meet. And then I'll say, well, you probably want to buy the land from Elimelech, right? And the guy says, of course I want that land. You betcha. And then Boaz says, well, and then you want to marry the woman too, right? And the guy says, don't want any part of that. Thank you very much. Don't need that. Got plenty of wives already. All full up there. And so Boaz says, so everybody sees here. I am taking the place of the primary redeemer. I'll buy the land and I'll marry the girl. Now, you may say, well, I don't know. That seems like a no-brainer. It wasn't. It was a huge deal. 
let's see if we get a couple ideas that might inform this. Because I have to ask the question, why was Boaz so gracious to this Moabitess woman? What was going on? Now, you know he, had a, he was a man of great character because you saw how his employees had responded to him when he was out in the field. You saw that. You also know that he does care about family because it's mentioned in there. And he is wondering about Naomi. That's an important thing to him. And there's some, maybe Ruth was a good-looking girl. I don't know. But bigger than that, here's what happens. Boaz may very well have been hearing the voice of his own mother and the stories of his own mom. Now, as the Bible tells the story, you have to check into the genealogy that's written in Matthew to pull this out. But the mother of Boaz was the prostitute Rahab from the town of Jericho. She had married Salmon and had a child, and this was Boaz. And I can imagine, you can imagine this too in your own mind. Here's Boaz. He remembers the story from his mom. And she, he remembers how hard it was for her to come and to be a part of this people group that was not her people. And not just another people group, but people who had destroyed her own country. And she is telling the stories of, of trying to come to terms with this God of this new faith and everything else that was going on. And also, I'm sure the looks she got from the Jewish mothers. I mean, you know Jewish mothers, right? The looks she got as being a non-Jew. And Boaz has the opportunity then to hear in the context of his own backstory, he watches this young woman in the field and he hears her accent mixed in with the Hebrew that she's trying to get a handle on. And he sees the difference in her color and in her appearance and some of her features. And he has compassion for her. Great compassion. Not a coincidence how this entire thing plays out. Just know this, moms, you may never know who God will use to bless your children. And that brings up the next idea, which is this. There's no way that you can know in the big picture that you can know the end while you're still in the beginning or the middle. You can't know that from there. Now, there's a story about a, a woman and her husband that are out driving around town. And he's a very successful CEO. They're in their brand new Mercedes. They pull in to get some gas, go into the convenience store. And she has a little conversation with the guy behind the desk, the clerk. And so her husband notices that when they get back out in the car. And he says, it looked, looked like you've kind of met that guy before. And she said, I not only met that guy before, but I dated that guy and we almost got married. And so the, you know, the sharp guy says, well, aren't you glad that you married me with, with what I can provide for you rather than that knucklehead back there in the convenience store? And the woman says, well, the truth is, if I'd have married him, he'd be a CEO right now, too. <laughs> you can't know the end from the beginning or the middle. Well, let me tell you two more things that play out. This is, again, not just a little book that's wedged into a tiny spot in the Old Testament. This book ties up unbelievable things. First thought, there is no way that Naomi could see four generations into the future. At the very tail end of the book of Ruth, it tells the genealogy that happens. For Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a son. 
and his name is Obed. And Obed carries on the family of Elimelech. And Obed has a son, and his name is Jesse. And Jesse carries on the family and has a bunch of sons. But Jesse's last son was David. David, the great king. And not only does this tie together in the genealogies, but because the family kept the tradition together and it stayed hooked and it moved forward, David sat on the edge of fields tending sheep. And I can guarantee you it was the same fields that Ruth had crawled around in gathering grain for her mother-in-law. Same fields. The fields of Boaz, the fields of Elimelech, the fields of the family. He probably wrote what is one of the most beautiful things ever written in human history, a poem to his sheep sitting maybe on the same rock that Boaz had sat on when he first saw Ruth across that field. Connectedness. Unbelievable promise. No way in the darkness of those first hours of that story and days and years and years and decades could Naomi see what was going to happen as it played out. Where do you think David got the faith that he had? First of all, do you remember some of the descriptions of David? He was a little more red and ruddy and looked a little different than everybody else. Do you know why? He had prostitute blood in him from Rahab from Jericho, and he has Moabite blood from his great-grandmother, Ruth. But where did he get the faith and the stories and the things that informed those songs that he wrote? It may very well have been his mother who told him the story of his great and his great-great-grandmother. Now, not only could Naomi not see that, but here's the last thing. No way, no how could she see a thousand years out into the future. Not a chance. Oop, one back from that, Carmine. No way could she see a thousand years out and see what would happen. Because a thousand years before that, a young man brings his pregnant wife back to Bethlehem. And they're walking around. And she is ready to deliver. The Caesar has said, you got to go home and register. The timing could not be worse. They get into town. There's no place for anybody to stay. Of course, somebody probably had camel stickers printed up that said, if it's tourist season, why can't we hunt them? I don't know. That could have been happening. But anyways, they walk into town. No place to stay. She has to go back out in the back shed or maybe even a rock outcropping with the animals and delivers her child. She is a short period of time from a sojourn of her own that she'll have to take into Egypt to be separated from her family. Things are bleak. It's desperate. It's dark. And you remember what happened? While they're in there hanging out with the animals, a bunch of shepherds come bouncing in, jumping up and down. They're like, you will not believe what has just happened. You couldn't even imagine what we just saw. Angels in the sky singing to us while we're out in our fields, and they're telling us, great news. A king is born. you got to go into Bethlehem. Have you ever wondered why those angels talk to those shepherds? And you've ever wondered what fields those shepherds were in? A thousand years later, God, in his unbelievable, amazing way, connects and fulfills prophecy 
and connects a promise that was made to a prostitute in Jericho. And God says, here's the great news. These shepherds likely are sitting right on the side of the same fields that David sat by and that Ruth crawled around in to get grain for her mother-in-law. Moms, know this. You never know. You can't know the end from the beginning or the middle. Carmine, you can put that picture back up. So you see this picture. You all know what that is. What do you, what do you, what do you call that? Child's art, where would you hang it? On the refrigerator. That's where you always hang that kind of stuff. Now, anybody know what that is? What's that green thing? It's not a ninja turtle and it's not a spaceship. It's actually a camper. And the camper has people in it. And if you notice, the people are carrying things. And do you see this kind of bluish gray thing over here on the left? Do you have any idea what that is? That's the, no way, man. That's the tsunami that happened. And this is a a child who was drawing a picture of people taking help to those who were terribly ravaged in the last tsunami over in the Indian Ocean. Ladies and gentlemen, know this. If you drew a picture, it would look who knows like what. But as children draw pictures, we realize there's more going on here. There's a backstory. This is important. It matters. These stories in the Bible are almost like these pictures. If you just take them individually, you go, what's going on? It's amazing what's going on. And I don't know if God has a fridge, but he'd be hanging these pictures up. And he would hang your pictures up, Mom. Mom, you may draw a very dark picture right now, like Naomi would have drawn, one you'd be embarrassed about. God would hang it up there anyway. And he would hang up the pictures of your children, and God, in his unbelievable way, will connect, he'll fill in, he'll bless, he'll do what he does. Moms, hang in there. Have courage. Make the tough decisions. Let your convictions rule. And lift up your eyes and see the hope because it's out there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories. Unbelievable, unbelievable things that happen in the lives of these people. Um, terrible tragedy, and at the same time, with a mom who was on the edge of giving up, she returned, she came home, she brought a woman with her, and you filled in an incredible story for the king, the great king David, and the even greater king, Jesus. Thank you for using us in amazing ways. Bless each mom here, give her the courage and the hope to know that whereas the story may be bleak right now, you have a plan, and you know what's happening. We love you, God, and we pray all of that in the name of Christ. Amen.